We're pretty thankful for Jared and Amelia to do that. Uh, Jared and Amelia are staff kids, um, and when they showed up that day with their parents for the recording, they had not they didn't know that they would be recording. Uh, somebody called in sick, a planned recording called in sick, and they were thrust into the limelight, like staff kids often are. If you see a staff kid around, uh, maybe just say Merry Christmas. It's hard to be a staff kid sometimes around Christmas. And if they're rotten, you can you get my permission with mine. You can kick them in the butt and let them know. You guys, last year, my uh, handsome little brother, Jake, who's an amazing drummer, uh, went to Turner Valley to visit my parents. Uh, and while he was there, he made plans to meet up with one of his friends at a fancy downtown restaurant in Calgary. And you know the type, right? You got to make reservations and white tablecloths and all the tables are really close together. And because he's a good kid, he invited my 70-year-old mom to tag along with him and his friend. And so they went to this restaurant and they're having a great time and they're telling stories and they're laughing and everything seems really natural. And next to them, at uh, a two-top next to them, is a table with two very nice uh, young women having dinner together. And they're kind of watching through the side of their eyes what's happening at the table with my mom and Jake and his friend. And eventually the one girl reaches over and interrupts them and says, hey, can I just ask a question? Like, what's going on here? Like, what's this dynamic at this table? Uh, at which point, Jake's friend, Scott, who is the same age as Jake, reaches over and grabs my 70-year-old mom's hand and says, the three of us met on Tinder. <laughs> <laughs> Jake says this poor young lady's face just turned immediately red and she did not want to talk to them anymore. For whatever reason, the idea of a 70-year-old woman meeting two young men on Tinder is kind of a scandalous, it's a scandalous idea. But the truth is, the story of Christmas is also quite scandalous. Just think about it for a second. In this ancient culture, an unwed teenage girl gets pregnant. That's how the story of Christmas starts. And the, and the man that she's engaged to, Joseph, knows beyond the shadow of a doubt that it is not his child. Joseph's assumption, along with everybody that Mary knew, was that she had been unfaithful. And sure, we know the real story that Mary knew, that God put his son in her, but nobody was going to believe that far-fetched story. It's right up there with excuses like, the dog ate my homework, or I was late because my car didn't start. Nobody believes you guys when you use those excuses. Nobody was going to believe Mary and her excuse that it was immaculate conception. And so the story of Jesus starts in scandal, even before he was born. And then when you read the Gospels, these are the documented histories, the documented stories of the life of Jesus written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You discover that not only did Jesus' life begin in scandal, but his life continued to be quite scandalous. Over and over again, Jesus shocked people with his actions. He made them angry with his words, and he offended those in power so deeply 
that eventually it's what caused them to choose to try to have him killed. Now, listen to this. In the first century, we're going to do a little bit of context of what's happening. In the first century, when Jesus was born, women had basically no rights, right? They were subhuman. They, were not, they did not have any uh, uh, of the rights that men had in their time. A man could divorce his wife just by saying the word, right? Sometimes he had to write it on a letter, but he could divorce his wife but just by saying it out loud. <clears throat> and when, uh, when a mob brought an adulterous woman, a woman caught in adultery to Jesus, right? Did they bring the man? No, they only brought the woman. They were only going to hold the woman accountable for her sin. A woman's testimony in this time was not even considered valid in the court of law. A woman's testimony, they, couldn't, they didn't trust it. They didn't believe them. Only men could testify in court because women couldn't be trusted. In this world that Jesus was born into, women were marginalized in ways that we can't even and don't even want to begin to think about. And so, it was a scandal when Jesus told the mob threatening to stone the woman caught in adultery to leave her be. It was a scandal when a prostitute bowed at Jesus' feet and washed his feet with her tears and her hair. And he looked her in the eye and he said, your sins are forgiven. And again, it was a scandal when Jesus chose to make his friend Mary, a, a woman, the first witness of the resurrected Jesus and the first person to tell other people that Jesus was alive. He chose a woman whose testimony could not be trusted or would not be trusted. He gave her dignity. It was a scandal. And children found themselves in a similar position as women in this time. They were similarly marginalized. We live in a time when children are honored and protected, given inalienable rights. But in the first century, when Jesus showed up on the scene, this just was not the case with children. Children were less than. Children were not afforded any rights or protections. In fact, there was this Roman practice uh, called exposure. And, and it meant if you had a, a child born to you that you did not want, or they had, uh, or it was a girl and you wanted a boy, or they had a de defect or a disability, you could, and these people would, take the child out into the wilderness beyond the city walls and leave the child in the wilderness and let them die by exposure. And because it wasn't them who killed the child, they, the, the, there was no guilt on their hands. The children were left to die and exposed. This was a common practice in the Roman world. We can't even begin to imagine this, right, in our time. And so it was a scandal when Jesus rebuked his disciples from, prevent, from preventing the children to come to him. He, it was a scandal when Jesus looked at them in the eyes and said, you will never enter the kingdom of God unless you look and think and act like these little children. And so it was also scandalous when the first century Jesus followers would roam the wilderness outside the cities and find children who were being exposed and adopt them as their own and raise them as family. The world that Jesus was born into was full of racism 
and bigotry. And in many ways, it has not changed. We live in a time when these are still serious problems. But the difference is we know racism and bigotry are wrong and is widely condemned. But in the first century that Jesus stepped into, racism and bigotry were just normal, accepted parts of the culture. Jews hated Romans, Romans hated Jews, Jews hated Samaritans, Samaritans hated Jews. Genocide was a commonplace practice. And so, it was scandalous and unthinkable when Jesus chose to make the enemy of the Jews, a Samaritan, the hero in one of his stories. We know this story in antiquity as the story of the good Samaritan. His listeners, no doubt, his Jewish listeners, no doubt, when he told that story, could not fathom the idea of a good Samaritan. And it was scandalous when Jesus made it clear that when he says, love your neighbor, he doesn't just mean people who look and think and act like you, but he means every person, all people, love your neighbor, even when they don't look like you or have the same values as you. And it was scandalous that one of the first non-Jewish people to be recorded to decide to follow Jesus and be baptized was an Ethiopian eunuch, a black person who did not fit perfectly into gender expectations. This is scandalous stuff. Jesus lived a scandalous life. Scandalous because he elevated and gave value to people the society was content disregarding. He gave women a voice. He gave children dignity. He expressed racial equality. If Jesus had a people, it was the down and out, the abused and the forgotten, the marginalized and the less than. It was his scandalous love that got him into trouble over and over again. This is what Jesus said about love. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. It's a new command, love one another. Some people might say this is the most important thing Jesus said. In many ways, The whole New Testament after the Gospels and the book of Acts is the early church leaders and the early authors of Scripture attempting to explain how to live out this commandment, how to love one another in a broken world. What does it look like to love Jesus the way he has loved others? We have some snow clearing happening We had an angel last week. This week we've got snow clearing, you guys. It's great. (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm lost now. That's terrible. Shout out to C&B Maintenance who does our, uh, our snow clearing. They do a great job. They're very consistent and prompt. Okay, so these guys, the, the early church authors of Scripture and uh, uh, the, the people leading the church, they spend a lot of time trying to figure out what this means. What, how are we going to love one another? 
And, and they came up with some pretty good explanations because love one another is a broad thing, but what does it mean specifically? And, and I like to call these the one another statements. We have a whole list of them. Paul told us to honor one another. He told us to accept one another. We are told to bear with one another. Is there a person in your life that you need to bear with? I, I believe we all have them, right? That is love, to forgive one another. James, the brother of Jesus, told us that we are to pray for one another. We are to encourage one another, to warn one another, to not be gossiping about one another, to not be fake to one another, to carry one another. Luke tells us that love is sharing one another's possessions. And finally, Paul tells us to submit to one another. And there's more of these one another statements in Scripture. And I encourage you, if you read, if you have a physical Bible, or if you're reading on your phone, every time a one another statement comes up in the New Testament, underline it, highlight it. It's them, it's them explaining to us how to live out this love ethic of Jesus. Now, Andy Stanley has, uh, as a, a preacher, I like to listen to, and, and he's kind of found a, a, designed a question that encompasses all of these things. Annie Stanley has turned this one another love commandment into a question. What does love require of me? Now when you find out that person at work who you struggle to bear with is having problems with their kids or their spouse, what does love require of you in that moment? When you get into a fight with your kids or your wife or your husband, that never happens, right? What does love require of you then? When you get cut off in traffic and all you want to do is flip the bird, what does love require of you then? It's a good question, isn't it? It can apply to any situation you find yourselves in. What would our lives look like if we were motivated by love? Not by what's easy, not by what's beneficial to us, not by what we want. What would our lives and our church and our families look like if love informed and motivated all of our decisions? There is a great example of this in the New Testament. It's the book of Philemon. Actually, it's a bit disingenuous to call Philemon a book. It's literally only one page in your Bibles. A um, little bit of Bible history designed for you. The way your Bible, your New Testament sections of your Bible is organized is by author and length. And so after the Gospels and after the book of Acts, all the books that Paul wrote are together, all the books that Peter wrote are together, all the books that John wrote are together. And then in each author section, they start with the longest book that they wrote and end with the shortest book they wrote. So in Paul's section, which we're going to look at today, it starts with the book of Romans, which has 16 chapters. And 13 books later, he finishes with his shortest letter, the book of Philemon, which is less of a book and more of a post-it note. The book of Philemon is a letter. <laughs> the book of Philemon is a letter written to a specific person named Philemon. And uh, most of Paul's books are addressed to churches, right, to big communities. But this book is addressed to a person named 
Philemon. Now, Philemon was a well-off Roman citizen. Now, he didn't grow up reading the Hebrew scriptures. He didn't know anything about their God. And the truth is, we're not, it's not clear, but we can safely assume that he uh, grew up worshiping uh, in the pantheon of Roman gods. That was the culture that he grew up in and, and lived with. His moral compass and his ethics were shaped by the Roman world, not the Jewish world, not the Christian world, by the Roman world. And this means, like almost all Roman patriarchs, Philemon owned slaves. And when Philemon met Paul, he became a Jesus follower. He became an important leader in the local church. And in those early days of the church, the ethics of Jesus' love, right, that they're writing about, that they're trying to figure out what does it mean to love another, these things are still being sorted out, right? They're, they're, every new situation, they're trying to decide what does it mean to love one another. And so when it came to slaves, at this point in the story, even though slavery is incompatible with Jesus' ethic of love, the early church hadn't gotten to a point yet where it was uh, condemning it, right? This is only a few years after Jesus' life and death. And so they're still working out what it means to love one another when it comes to slavery. And so Philemon had a slave. And one of those slaves was uh, a man named Onesimus. Brune? Onesimus. I'm going to go with Onesimus. I don't know for sure. Onesimus. And we're told that he has wronged his master in the book of Philemon when Paul is writing. We are told he has wronged his master Philemon. We don't know. Maybe he stole from him. Maybe he hurt somebody. We're not sure what Onesimus did to Philemon. But we do know he wronged him. And in fear, Onesimus ran away. He was afraid of what Philemon might do to him. So he ran away. And he ran to Paul, the apostle Paul, who at the time was in prison. And after talking with Paul, Onesimus decided that he wanted to become a Jesus follower. And he ended up becoming a great friend of Paul and a great help in the ministry of Paul, even though Paul was in prison. So he needed people to help him. And so Onesimus became a great help to Paul. And Paul had great affection for Onesimus. But Paul knew that unresolved conflict between Christians was wrong, that it was a sin. He knew this unresolved tension and conflict and brokenness between Philemon and Onesimus was wrong. It didn't fit with the ethic of Jesus' love, of love one another, love. And so Paul writes Philemon a letter, and he asks Philemon to do something unheard of in the ancient Roman world. He asked Philemon to welcome Onesimus back, not as a slave, but as a brother, to forgive him and to welcome him into his family as an equal. In the Roman world, this was a scandalous request. There are a few ways Paul could have used to convince Philemon to do this, to receive Onesimus this way. Paul writes to Philemon, he says, I could be bold, and I could order you to do what you ought to do. Listen, Philemon, I'm Paul. I'm in charge. Everybody does what I say. 
I'm writing 13 books in this New Testament thing we're working on. You should do what I say because I know what's right. But Paul says, I'm not going to do that. And Paul has requested he forgive his slave and receive him as a brother. And, and often Paul, when he would write his books, would dictate them to somebody and they'd write them. And so often it wasn't in his own handwriting. And then in this part of his letter to Philemon, Paul makes sure to write just these few little lines in his own handwriting. So Philemon knows he's serious. He says, I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very self. Can you imagine if me or Doug did this to you? <laughs> if we were like, hey, John, come shovel my driveway. You owe me your soul, <laughs> right? It's, it's unthinkable. But Paul, Paul says, I could. You do owe me everything. I'm the person who introduced you to Jesus. If it wasn't for me, you would be lost. I could do this, but I won't. He doesn't appeal to Philemon's sense of obligation. He doesn't appeal to his sense of ethics. He doesn't leverage his own influence. Listen to what Paul says. Although in Christ, I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. Philemon, what does love require of you? What does love require of us? In the scandalous love of Jesus, the broken are made whole. The lost are found. The hurting find comfort. The weak find strength. And the oppressed find freedom. Steph sang it for us already this morning. Beautifully, I might add. O holy night, truly he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. Chains he shall break for the slave is our brother. In his name all oppression shall cease. The love of Jesus is scandalous. It's good news to the poor. It's sight for the blind. Captives are released and the oppressed are set free. We talk about love this Advent because God is love. And God, for some reason, has chosen us, his church, to be the primary way he reveals his love to this world. In chapter 4 in 1 John is my favorite chapter in the whole Bible. It's all about love. And this is what John said, No one has ever seen God but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is brought to full expression in us. Do, do, do we know it? Do we realize what that means? When we love one another, when you love your neighbor, when you follow the ethic of the love of Jesus, Jesus is present in that moment. When you love, God is in the room. When you love, God is there among you. When you love, God lives in us, and his love is brought to full expression in us. For God so loved the world, and God has chosen us to love the world, to be the way he shows his love to a weary and tired world. It's our job. It's our primary job. 
And it can be a little bit daunting to think about loving the world, right? That's, that's a lot of people. It's a lot of people in the world. But if you just choose to love your neighbor, to, to, to love one person, one family, it's a little bit more approachable, isn't it? My parents did a good job teaching me this when I was growing up. They, uh, they were the sort of people who would let uh, people who were down on their luck live with us until they got back on their feet. We had some interesting people live with us over the years, didn't we, Jake? It was a weird house to grow up in. But my parents loved people so much that when people found themselves down on their luck, they would let them live with us. Our house was a revolving door of people, and my parents were consistently loving one person at a time. It's, it's, our house was so weird that way, and you've heard me tell this story before, that one time we had a teenager living with us for three days, and I thought he was Jake's friend, Jake thought he was Josh's friend, Nathan saw, thought he was Jill's friend, and after three days when he left, we were like, hey, who was that guy? And nobody knew him. Nobody knew his name. He had just heard the reputation that Chateau Welsh was open for business. My parents taught me that loving your neighbor is very important. And this Christmas, it's hard to love the whole world. It's hard to love your whole neighborhood. It's hard. It, these are things that are unattainable for many of us. But you can love one person. You can love one family. And ask the question, what does love require of me? And like Paul this morning, I appeal to you on the basis of love. Not obligation. Not an order. On the basis of love, what does love require of us this morning? A new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. Let me take a moment to pray for us. Jesus, this morning, we just take a moment to thank you for your scandalous love. A love that changed the whole world, that changed the course of history. We thank you that in the middle of what was a difficult and scary time in the world, that you chose to elevate and give dignity to the people that you created, those who were marginalized and oppressed. Jesus, thank you for showing the way what it means to love one another. And I pray this morning for us as a church that we would subscribe to your ethic of love. That we would begin to ask the question, what does love require me in our everyday lives with our friends and our families and our coworkers and especially with those who tire us? Jesus, we can't do this on our own. And so we need your power. Give us your love. Help us to be filled to overflowing with your spirit so that we might love well and bless the people around us and bless our neighbors. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.